Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The rally with stocks on track for a fourth positive month in a row. NASDAQ closing in on its own milestone. NVIDIA shares continuing their incredible climb. We're, of course, trading all of it with the committee. And joining us for the hour today, Josh Brown, Bryn Talkington, Joe Terranova, and Jim Labenthal. We'll show you what the markets are doing. Well, modest gains, I guess we could say. S&P's flat. NASDAQ, as I said, is working on an all-time closing high. Got a little bit of work to do. And we're going to get to all of that in just a few minutes. We do begin today, though, with a halftime special event. Jamie Dimon with us exclusively today from the J.P. Morgan Global High Yield and Leverage Finance Conference in Miami Beach. Our Leslie Picker is there with him. Les, take it away. Hey, Scott, thank you. And thank you so much to Jamie for being here. So we are at your high yield and leveraged finance conference in Miami. You've got executives, deal makers, investors, all kind of coming together to talk about the financing environment. How would you characterize C-suite confidence levels now? First of all, thrilled to be here. Thank you for doing this. This is our 29th conference. I've probably been to 20 of them since I became CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. You know, look, you, gotta, you, look at, you always got to look at markets that they change their mind pretty quickly. But right now, confidence is up. There's more M&A chatter. Equity markets open a little bit. Spreads are getting close to historical lows, which is means you know there's a lot of money chasing uh, a high yield deals. So things are kind of open. Markets are high. People feel it. So. So far, so good. That sounds to run somewhat counter to your more bearish views. I know you said um, in fourth quarter earnings that uh, last month that inflation may be stickier, rates may be higher than the markets expect. Is that still your base case? And what's kind of fueling that more cautious tone right now? Yeah, so the way I look, you know, remember in 1972, you felt great too. And before any crash, you felt great. And then so things changed. So you have you got to look ahead. I do think there are things out there which are kind of concerning. We've got an eye on, and so and why are we doing so well? A lot of it's fiscal spending, and fiscal spending has a multiplier too. So I just think it may not come down that quick, and people may be surprised. So when people talk about you know the market is kind of pricing a soft landing, that may very well happen. But you know the odds at seven or eighty percent, I would give them half of that. That's all. Seven or eight rate cuts? No, seven, seven, seventy or eighty percent chance we'll have a soft landing. I give it half that. We may very well have one, but I think just, there was also a higher chance in the market things of rates being a little bit higher. The other thing I think it's always a mistake to do is look at just the year. All these factors we talk about, QT, fiscal spending, deficits, the geopolitics, those things may play out over multiple years. But they will play out, and they will have an effect. 
and we just don't know what they are. So I'm just, you know, in my mind, I'm kind of kind of cautious about everything. You're hedging. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about commercial real estate. We've yeah. got nearly a trillion dollars of commercial multifamily real estate debt that will mature this year. About half of that, about a trillion, $929 billion worth. Yeah. Um, half of that is owned by banks, mostly regional banks there. The rest is either securitized or due to non-bank lenders. Um, we've seen higher levels of defaults in certain pockets of uh, the market and a slump in property prices recently. Do you think that stress in commercial real estate will ultimately be the source of the next credit event? You know, first of all, put commercial in perspective with consumer. The consumer markets are far bigger. So it happened in 07 or 08. This isn't that kind of thing. And a lot of these owners of this can handle what you call stress. So in the banking system, I'm just going to focus this on office for a second because there's warehouse, there's data centers, there's hospitals, there's, uh, and some of that stuff is actually well done. Uh, but if you take just offices, first of all, they're worth less because of interest rates. When interest rates go up 300 basis points, whatever you own with their cash flow is worth 30% less. And so people, that's not a crisis, that's kind of a known thing. And then there's the, you know, if you have a recession, yes, it'll get worse. If we don't have a recession, I think most people will be able to muddle through this, you know, refinance, put more equity in. And of course, when you talk about defaults being higher, part of that's just a normalization process. They were so low for so long, so in all of credit, you're watching this, things go up, but they're not at a crisis level, they're just kind of going to normal. So, yes, if rates go up and we have a recession, there will be real estate problems. And some banks will have a much bigger real estate problem than others. So you think, you know, as you kind of assess the, the landscape and, and regional banks, there'll be more of a, a whack-a-mole than a kind of domino effect? As long as the economy stays like this, there'll be more of a whack-a-mole. There's no, there should be no domino effect. The problems you've seen were kind of idiosyncratic, problems with Silicon Valley, First Republic, uh, New York Community Bank. Uh, and a lot of these, you know, it's also it's very local. I mean, you talk about real estate, I think when you say blanketed, if I call it an office and I'm, I have great leases in it, it's fully leased out, 20-year leases, that's completely different than the spec building. So you really got to dig deeper, and, you know, we try to do that when we look at credit about where it is. It'll be pockets. Are you concerned at all about just the migration of, of lending taking place in the non-bank financial sector? I mean, we're here at the Global High Yield and Leverage Finance Conference. I know there are a lot of private credit managers here, uh, but that's something that's caught the regulators' attention as well. Well, finally, maybe wake them up a little bit. First of all, I don't mind competition. Some of these people who you call private credit are excellent. They know what they're doing. That doesn't mean they all do. And if you, when you look at policy issues about private credit, first of all, we've been doing it a long time. Just keep in mind, like, we make loans, middle market loans. They came through with a bunch of stuff that made it simpler. Unit tranche, actually more expensive. Unit tranche, different covenants. You know, you could sign it quickly, no pricing. But there are other things, less transparency, less liquidity, no secondary markets, no research. So you got to look at the whole thing, what works and what doesn't work. It will sort through it. We'll be a competitor. I have no problem knowing that we're going to be a competitor. And a lot of smart people out there, you know, they've been on TV saying, you know, they're dan I said they're dancing in the street, but they agree with me this time. They say, absolutely, the bank, you know, banks are being pushed out of a whole bunch of different businesses. And, you know, I always say if that's what the regulars want, then do it. I'm completely fine with it. JP will do fine, but it should be done with the forethought, not accidentally. Like I said, there are some negatives. So I think if you have a major recession, you'll probably see some issues in private credit. Whether systemic, you know, not, I don't really think so, but it might be in ways we don't understand today. 
Speaking of competition and regulation, last week we saw a major deal with Capital One uh, and its deal to acquire Discover. The potential there is to reshape the, the credit card industry. The combination would create the largest card issuer in the U.S., surpassing J.P. Morgan Chase. For, for now. As measured for now. So if this deal is approved, does it create more competition for you? I, look, I, I think companies should be allowed to do and innovate and grow and merge and try to challenge things. I think that's good. So I think it's a mistake to act like it's bad. It's good for competition. In fact, some of we I think they should allow some of these small banks to merge. If that's how they, they think they can best compute J.P. Morgan, you should let them. It may not work in every case, but they, you shouldn't predetermine that. You should let the market uh, predetermine that. In this particular thing, there's the credit card business, which is they'll be bigger, more scale. They're very good at it. I mean, I have enormous respect for Richard Fairbanks and Cap One. Um, and then there's the networks, the, the debit network and the credit network. The debit network, it may have an unfair advantage versus us. Of course, I have a problem with that. You know, like, why should they be allowed to price debit differently than we price debit just because of a law that was passed? I don't know what the plans are, really. You know, I, like I said, I have a lot of, whatever Richard does, I pay a lot of attention to do. Can they actually create another credit uh, card network? I don't know. Um, but, you know, my view is let them compete. Let them try. And if we think it's unfair, we'll, we'll complain about that. But I'm not worried about it, really. Uh, like I, but we do track everything he does. And on that regulatory bucket. I always make a joke with Richard that the reason I have my job is because of him. Because Cap One is the one that kind of dissected the credit card business. Cap One started to beat the hell out of First USA. First USA, which had been bought by Bank One, collapsed. And it you know, called into credibility of the management, and they hired me. <laughs> so Richard is why I'm here. <laughs> it all goes full circle. Yeah. Um, so speaking of regulation, that also affects you. Basel III, I know you've been very vocal about this. Um, and there's a lot of talk that these higher capital requirements could be watered down. They could be thrown out entirely. Have regulators really come around to the industry view that this will be more expensive without much benefit for the economy? When you say that, you know, there are a lot of regulators and some are on, over here and some are over here. You know, uh, I, I don't know. I don't think the work was done to answer that question. So I don't think I should be guessing. I think that's why you have this process. I don't think that process was open, transparent, you know, asking a question, what will that do to small business loans? What do the mortgage loans? But what it'll do to market making? Why we have a thing called operational risk capital and how that, I mean, you sit there and it's a one in a thousand year loss, really? Like, who invents these kind of things? And so I, I question, I think at one point, and they, they, you know, the worst thing is we don't have conversations with regulators anymore. We can actually talk about the world. The biggest risks are cyber, okay? They're, they're a major recession. There are certain these accounting issues that, that Cecil, you know, they combine to create an issue. But, you know, th we should be worried about real risk. And in some ways, all of this stuff detracts from having real conversations about that risk. Had that taken place in Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic, maybe they never would have failed. But no, they're doing models for the Fed. You know, and I, I think people have to take a little deep thought. And one day, I think the whole thing should be revamped. I think we can make the system safer, simpler. We could probably eliminate bank runs, create much more liquidity in the system. But that's what we should be talking about. And, you know, I mean, I, it's not that I didn't support Dodd-Frank. I do. But this has gone way beyond that. that that's and I really, think there are legitimate issues about the process itself. It's interesting right. you say that, especially as we come up to the one-year anniversary of, of the many uh, turmoil we had last year in the regional banking system. Uh, as you reflect back, you think that there are regulations that could have been in place that would have prevented something like that from happening. And, and that higher capital requirements are not it. Uh, absolutely. Well, the, the, that was HTM accounting, concentrated deposits, and interest rate exposure. Those, we all know that. 
you know, and yeah, so people, I don't know who, who to blame a regular. First, I blame the banks, let's not blame the regulators. But the fact is, those things can be fixed. How you look at uninsured deposits, how you create liquidity, how you back up, you know, the FDIC and how the FDIC backs up banks, that, that can all be put in a much better, in my view. So the way to run a railroad is to say, how can we make it better work for everybody? Uh, and then with the fourth thought, decide, do you want these things out of banks? Do you want mortgages out of banks? Does that create additional risk or less risk? Do you want private credit out of banks? Does it create more risk or less risk? How important is market making? So market making is a critical function. And you know somehow, the way the regulators treat us sometimes like a hedge fund. It's not. We buy and sell two trillion a day. We almost never lose money. It creates very narrow bid-off spreads with transparency, risk, controls. It creates the primary market so that people can go like raise equity and debt, and you can't have one without the other. So it's a wonderful thing, that, and in America, it's the best in the world. So you know, if you're going to add 60% capital, you better think through what that does literally to farmers who need to hedge, you know, to, to oil, to, comp- to airlines who need to hedge. You know, to most of derivatives or FX or interest rate exposures protecting companies from those risks. Do you want it to be more expensive or less expensive? So the, these conversations never took place. And it's, a, uh, it's an election year. Um, does a, a change in, in leadership at the White House change anything for the banking system? Look, you know, we, my job is to run J.P. Morgan Chase. So, you know, I, I will, whoever's president, we're going to run J.P. Morgan Chase, we'll be fine, and we're going to try to help our country. That's my view about that, so. I want to ask you about your plan to open more branches, yeah. uh, because you announced a pretty ambitious plan to open 500 more branches over the course of the next three years. That's kind of different than conventional wisdom lately, which has been two shutter branches in lieu of, of digital banking. Um, is brick and mortar really a competitive edge in the yeah, banking system I, right now? When I got to Bank One, they were closing branches because you quote, you might not need them in the future. When I got to JP Morgan Chase, they were closing branches because quote, you might not need them in the future. Every day, 900,000 people go to those branches. They are much more advice centers than processing operational centers. So instead of having six tellers, you have Moore's loan officers, small business consultants, uh, wealth managers, et cetera. I mean, obviously we've thought this through. It obviously enhances our business in, in many different ways. That, but we also offer digital. So you can be digital only, and that's fine too. You can do both with us. And you know, some people want to have the backup for the branch. Some small businesses need it. You know, at the end of the day, they got to drop off coin and currency, and, and even wealthy people like to visit their money. Right, so I think people should <laughs> be careful about it. And if we had to change direction somehow, you know, we could. But a million people a day, and that's been taking place for 20 years. So when people tell me close the branch, I'm saying, really? So you're going to tell a million people who obviously walk with their feet that they can't do that anymore? So, but that doesn't mean you can't be a great digital-only bank. You know, so we're going to compete with both, and uh, there's a lot of competition out there. I talk about banking, you know, the, people tend to think about just bank versus bank. No, there's Chime and Dave and Revolut and PayPal and Venmo and Cash and Apple. Apple moves money, lends money, holds money. You know, you can pay with Apple wallets, et cetera. So that's what we have to deal with. But to me, it's always what works for the customer, not what works for us. And you know, like I said, we can always revamp the branch system 
literally within five years we had to. Wow. Um, speaking of the digital side of things, what innovations are you focused on from the AI standpoint? I know you've been investing heavily in AI. What are, how is that filtering through into the yeah. customer experience? Yeah, so the most important thing to me is, we've been doing it for 10 years, so I, you know, this notion that's new, now LLM is kind of new, and, and, and uh, but we just made uh, a woman on the management team who's going to be responsible for chief data analytics, because that's how important it is. We're pointing to Daniel Pinto and me, so that every business is doing data and analytics. The analytics is not just AI, there's all different types of analytics, and AI is all different types of AI. It's a, it, it's a permanent part of our DNA, and we use it for risk, fraud, marketing, suggestions, idea generation, error, uh, fixing errors, and th I would think of more as it's just starting, it'll be used in almost every job to make it easier to do things. You're gonna wake up in the morning and you're gonna know you're interviewing Jamie Dimon and your co-pilot on your shoulder is gonna say, here's what they did last week and the week before, here's some questions you might wanna ask, and here's some people you might wanna to talk to before you do it, and by the way, it'll take you 35 minutes to get there because the traffic's bad. <laughs> okay, that's what's gonna happen, and that's good. You know, and... You know. Luckily, I, I wouldn't have forgotten that even if my AI bot uh, hadn't reminded me. What do you make of just the, the overall hype surrounding AI? Well, Obviously, you, you have practical uh, this, this applications is, within J.P. Morgan, but just kind of overall in the market right yeah, now. Yeah, this is not hype. This, this is real. So, you know, when we had uh, the internet bubble the first time around, uh, eyeballs, you know, that was hype. This is not hype, it's real. And so people are deploying it, you know, at different speeds, uh, but it will handle a tremendous amount of stuff. We're all gonna get better, faster, smarter. Bad guys are gonna use it, so we have to build the systems to counter the bad guys. You know, it's being used to combat cyber right now. It's being, obviously, it's being used everywhere. So it's not hype. It's a, this will be for the rest of your life, and it'll be modern. You know, you're going to find a different ways to use it. And so, you know, we're asking the management teams, you know, imagine what you can do with, you know, some are way advanced already. We have 200 people in a research department just doing research and synthetic data on, you know, these large language models, the stuff you had, the facial stuff that just came out. We were doing that for a while ago, and how can we use it? So. Um, it's, this is real, it's, and it's real, it's very deep, and it'll figure out, it'll be used in healthcare, it'll save lives, it'll invent, uh, it may invent cancer cures, you know, because it can do things that the human mind simply cannot do. So, you know, even your blood has your DNA, your RNA, prior diseases, they're gonna know where you grew up, was there radon where you grew up, was this where you grew up, and putting that all together, they may be able to predict with much more accuracy what you might have, and then it can actually invent the drug that can stop it from happening. So I'm a big optimist about AI. I love and that. And yes, it'll be used for some bad stuff too. So. Yeah, I think I think that's a great place to end yeah. on that on that note of optimism. Jamie Dimon, really appreciate your time today here from the Global High Yield and Leveraged Finance Conference uh, that J.P. Morgan hosts here in Miami. Thank you, Jamie. Leslie, thank you. I'll send it back over to you, Scott. All right, Leslie, I appreciate it. And Jamie, thanks so much for being with us on Halftime Report today. We appreciate that. Have shareholders here. Uh, which is fortunate for us today, two sitting on the desk in, in Joe and Jim. Um, I don't know if I'd go full on a bullion for, for Jamie, but I mean, his tone is pretty good. Um, far from dour, far from hurricane Jamie, if you want to call it that, Joe. Um, points of confidence being up, capital markets chatter, spreads are tight, the multiplier effect on fiscal stimulus still keeping the uh, economy chugging along. Maybe not as confident, as he said, as the market view on a soft landing, right. which he put at about 70 to 80 percent. He said, well, probably about half that. But nonetheless, what's your takeaway from a person whose stock 
has done darn well of late. Oh, it's done remarkably well. And I think it dismisses the premise that you should be concerned because he sold $150 million worth of stock. And that's the first time that he had sold the stock. Um, I, I, you could tell that he feels, use the word confident uh, multiple times. I think that's important because I think there is confidence right now. But let's understand, this is a best in breed money center bank a best-in-breed money center bank that seems to be always well-positioned to take advantage of the opportunity. And that's exactly what they did one year ago when they were able to win the auction for First Republic, very similar to what they were able to do in the great financial crisis with Washington Mutual and Bear Stearns. This is a company that knows how to manage the balance sheet. This is a company that's investing mm -hmm. more than any other money center bank in technology. And that is now working to their advantage. And as you move forward, there will be another crisis. And J.P. Morgan, because of the balance sheet, will be able to make an acquisition just like they did with First Republic. A few bucks, Jimmy, from an all-time high. The stock's up 16 of 17 weeks, up four months in a row, as the you know, overall market has obviously had a good run, and his stock has been near the forefront of it in terms of what it's done for the financials. I think we're all going to agree that J.P. Morgan is the creme de la creme within the financial sector. And as you were just setting up that question to me, Scott, what I thought about is that the financial sector overall has been rallying. I mean, this may catch people by surprise, but year-to-date, the financial sector, as measured by the XL, is slightly ahead of the S&P 500. Yeah, they're neck and neck, but your point's well, well taken. I mean, neck and neck, but 6.9% versus 6.6%. And I think that outperformance is going to continue. If you just look at the fundamentals, this applies not to just to J.P. Morgan, but to the big banking sector writ large. What you see here is that the consumer is employed, and yes, credit losses have normalized, but it doesn't look like they're going to be a problem as long as the consumer is employed. The economy is expanding on the back of infrastructure acts that will require financing, you got the capital markets just poised to reopen and really get some some new issuance going uh, as both the stock and bond market is doing a lot better than we were doing just a year ago. Um, a lot of reasons to expect this to continue. I do want to put an asterisk to this. We have to do this. When I speak positively about the banking sector, I am leaving aside the regional bank index. And I'm not it's not that I'm overly negative on it, but you just can't ignore the commercial real estate sector there. So in my own portfolio, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, BlackRock. Berkshire. These are all parts of the XLF, which is where I think people should be exposed. He addressed that directly. No domino effect were the words that he used on commercial real estate as long as the economy remains strong. If rates go up, you have a recession, well, then we're going to have some problems. Uh, certainly admitting of, you know, what many believe, if you do have a weakening in, in economic activity, credit spreads get a little nutty, uh, you could have some issues certainly within commercial real estate. Josh, you're, you're a holder of the shares, too. I want your opinion, though, on what he said when he was asked directly about AI. Not hype, it's real, he said, and it partially explains why we've witnessed the rally we have, which has the NASDAQ within spitting distance of its own closing all-time high. Yeah, well, of, co of course it's not hype. There are elements of it that are hype, just like there are elements of any new technology that comes along. There are always going to be people that speak first and actually you know, do the research later, and there will always be people that overstate the benefits or they pull forward something that might take 10 years to build and they act like it's already here. That's okay. That's part of innovation. But I, I want to get back to this point about the banks themselves. Banks are terrible investments, almost always. They can be, make for good trades. Every once in a while, they get so depressed that you just have to buy them. J.P. Morgan is almost a thing apart from all of its peers. When Jamie Dimon, who is obviously the GOAT, 
became the CEO of JP Morgan on January 1st, 2006, it was not clear that JP Morgan was going to be a leader of the sector. In fact, it wasn't at that time. Since then, the stock is up 650%. The S&P 500 is up 476%. The XLF is only up 126%. Think about it. It's almost 20 years. The XLF is only up 126%. Most of those stocks are terrible. The CAGR of JP Morgan earnings per share over the last five years explains that, that divergence. It's 13%. Go look at Bank of America, it's 3%. Wells Fargo, 2.5%. Um, U.S. Bank Corp, negative 5 Citigroup, negative 10 So there's a reason why J.P. Morgan has separated itself. Now, you might ask, well, obviously it's going to be more expensive to buy J.P. Morgan versus those other banks because of how well they've executed. And the truth is, no, not really. You could buy J.P. Morgan stock today at a 1.7 multiple of book value. Bank of America's one. Wells Fargo's one. City is 0.5. It's not that big of a premium. So if the question is, I want to buy a big money center bank, there's one stock to choose from, in my opinion, and it's this one. The other ones, they're in their own category. They're not even in the same sport. So, Bryn, let's broaden it out, talk about the market at large. We uh, obviously have re reasonably muted gains today. The Russell's outperforming. NASDAQ's going for that new all-time closing high. Ed Yardeni's out today saying the bull market gets no respect. That might be the case, but it seems to be getting more love. According to Bank of America and their you know, annual survey of advisors, 70% see more, quote, green shoots than red flags. 70%, 77%, excuse me, a little more than three-quarters think the bull market continues beyond 2024. Wolf Research is talking about the melt-up marching higher. What could possibly stand in its way? Well, maybe some things, but not, not until the spring at the earliest. Your view? Yeah, well, I mean, I still think it goes back to right now NVIDIA. I mean, it's NVIDIA's world and we're all living in it. In Q4, NVIDIA was 31% of the earnings growth for all of the S&P in Q4. And so as I see analysts continuing to raise their earnings guidance for the year, a large part of that is for one company because it's just gotten so big and the beats are so big. And so I definitely think that people on the sidelines see the excitement happening within NVIDIA and some of the other names and want to get in. And I think going back to you know, what Jamie said also about the economy, as long as, as long as labor is strong, as long as unemployment is low, we are a consumer economy. You're not going to go into a recession unless there's an exogenous event. So I still think the labor market is like the linchpin for the economy. And the labor market, we just still have not enough employees to fit all the jobs. So I, I think that that's why you're seeing more people being more constructive, in addition to the excitement and the real, realism around the earnings momentum around NVIDIA. All right, so let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna do our calls of the day. We also have a new buy from Josh Brown, a Dow component. I'm gonna tell you what it is next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com.
Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Dow's up about 20 points, as you see there. We do have a committee move to get to. It is Josh Brown. It is a Dow component, and it is McDonald's. Tell us why. Uh, this is this is a trade. I really like the technical setup here. The fundamental story uh, speaks for itself. McDonald's in December had a investor day, and basically the plan going forward is to grow this company at the fastest rate ever. Uh, they're talking about some very ambitious plans. They want to grow by 9,000 restaurants in the next three years. They're at about 41,200. They want to go to 50,000. They're also having incredible success with their uh, reward points, loyalty program, and app usage. And I'm really looking at this from both a fundamental and a technical perspective because they intend to have 250 million active loyalty uh, program users by 2027. That would be up from 150 million. They're also pushing more and more of the delivery business off of the other apps and directly onto their own. Lastly, they just surpassed Starbucks as the largest app usage. They're at 40 million versus 30 million. So there's a lot happening here that's technological. And then if you actually look at the price setup, you got a stock about 297, 298, if you look at a three-year chart, uh, that, that was where the stock peaked out in the summer of 2023. It spent the last almost nine months consolidating. I think it's going to punch through. And when it does, there are probably not many sellers left. Um, and if you want to look at this from a risk management perspective, it's pretty obvious that the 200-day has been serving as support. Uh, the 50-day is a little bit noisier. We did have a violation, but it was a false breakdown. That's where my uh, stop will go. I'll trail it with that 50-day. I'll update that pretty much on a weekly closing basis every Friday. Uh, but I'm hoping we can stay long this name because I think both fundamentally and technically it has what it takes. I mean, you're 50% away from cornering the burger market with <laughs> McDonald's and Shaq. You need restaurant brands and Wendy's and you're good. Well, also, McDonald's is going to bring back the McCrispy, which I think is important, not only uh, financially, but spiritually. I think people want to see that back in stores, and that's part of the plan for this year. So right. very exciting stuff <laughs> happening between the technicals and crispy chicken 
and there's a lot to talk about here. Uh, <laughs> clearly, clearly. Thank you for uh, bringing us up to date on that. You want to uh, you want to take a look at, like, at look, this trade? I, no, I, I see what Josh sees. Technically, it's a very strong trade. And, you know, we heard this morning from, from Domino's a really strong earnings report, very similar to what Josh is describing in the fundamental environment for McDonald's. And it's, it's counter to the argument that because of all the GLP-1 um, right now that's going on, right. that you're going to see these stocks falter. So, I don't know. I look at McDonald's, strong balance sheet, strong capital allocation return, and investing in delivery. And why is that important? Because they have the distinctive advantage where their real estate is in prime positions. So, if Josh is ordering um, a Big Mac and quarter pounder, that Big Mac and quarter pounder is going to be to him relatively quickly Salad. because of the prime real estate. Salad. Salad. Okay, yeah, sure. All right, so Josh has a buy on McDonald's. Uh, other calls, Salesforce gets a few price target hikes today, bullish calls, and that's ahead of Wednesday's earnings report, which is going to be key uh, for another stock in the AI stratosphere that's done well. Joe, you own it. New 52-week high today. Jeffrey's price target, 350. City price target, 325. Morgan Stanley, 350. Top pick, um, you know, for, for one, or if not more of yeah, those Yeah, very banks. big earnings report this week. And also Workday. Let's follow that as well. Um, these AI software-related names, whether it's ServiceNow, Adobe, Salesforce, um, they're all critically important. And I think that Salesforce is going to benefit from the acquisition of MuleSoft several years back um, in the AI adoption that they're ultimately going to be benefiting from. But the reason why the strategy went into the stock last April really was the improvement of the balance sheet and the acceleration of margins that was a remarkable story mid-teens in the early part of 2022, now three consecutive quarters above 30%. Strength in margins, cost efficiency is being implemented perfectly, no more acquisitions, and I think that tells a good story in which you're able to focus on the future, which is the AI software adoption. How about CVS, Jimmy, initiated outperform today at Leering, price target to 88, it's at 76. As you see, they cite headwinds, but lots of cash potential with the biz model update. Well, I think the cash potential is the reason to own the stock. Uh, being more specific, last year around this time, they made two acquisitions, Oak Street and Signify. They were big acquisitions. They had to take out some debt to pay for those, but they were strategic, and now they're starting to generate cash flows. With those cash flows, the company is paying down debt and buying back shares. Uh, shares traded nine times earnings, 3.5% dividend yield. Recently got knocked down off of 82, and that was on the back of the uh, fourth quarter results with medical loss ratios higher than expected. Folks, that's been digested by the markets. I think the strategy is in place. You let this break out above 82. That's only about 7% higher. I think it will happen, and once it does, it goes higher from there. All right, let's get the headlines now with Pippa Stevens. Hey, Pippa. Hey, Scott. Hungary's parliament approved Sweden's membership to NATO today ending months of delays and officially clearing the last hurdle to join and expand the Western military alliance. Hungary was the last nation to ratify Sweden's accession following Turkey's vote in December. President Biden will make a visit to the U.S.-Mexico border on Thursday, the same day former President Donald Trump will be visiting. The White House said that Biden will travel to Brownsville, Texas, where he'll meet with U.S. Border Patrol agents, law enforcement and local officials about the Senate border security bill and ways to secure the border. Former President Trump is expected to visit Eagle Pass. And the Federal Trade Commission today sued to block grocery train Kroger's $24.6 billion deal to buy rival Albertsons. 
In the filing, the FTC said the merger would eliminate competition and lead to higher prices for consumers. The deal has drawn heavy antitrust concerns, with states including Colorado and Washington already suing to block the merger. Scott, back to you. Pippa, appreciate that. Pippa Stevens, coming up, Berkshire's banner year. Shares touching fresh all-time highs after posting a record annual profit. Two of our committee members own that, which means we'll trade it. We'll do it next. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back. Shares of Berkshire Hathaway hitting an all-time high. Earlier today, on the back of a record quarter, operating earnings jumping 28% in the fourth quarter. Berkshire Cash, cash excuse me, now topping $167 billion. Jim, I'll go to you. Josh, I'm coming to you in a minute. But, Jim, you first. Your takeaway here, they're sitting on a mountain. Uh, prices are high. The, I think, prevailing thought from the meeting and, and Buffett's tone was one of like, eh, you know, here we are, you know. Well, he's, he's priced out of making any deals that would put a meaningful amount of that cash to work. And he says, you know, accurately that any big deal has been picked over by both by him and by the markets overall. So the tone was definitely don't expect to see a big deal anytime soon. Maybe that's, you know, him playing Fox. I don't know, but I think it's more likely to be literally true. What did catch my eye um, is within the operating companies, Burlington Northern Santa Fe really did not have a good year. Um, and, you know, listening to or rather reading his letter, he indicated this is a capital and labor intensive business. In fact, he made it sound exactly like a business that he would never own, except for the fact that it's irreplaceable, can't be duplicated. Here's where I'm going with this. There is room for improvement at Burlington Northern Santa Fe. He's no dummy. He knows it. He knows there are other railroads that have made significant operational improvement. He said in the uh, letter that he's going to spend this year with his management getting Burlington Northern uh, back on track. And I think that's what's going to happen, pun intended. It's probably one of the reasons he bailed on the airlines, too. You know, in some respects, capital and labor intensive and just got fed up. With, yeah. with that type of It's of not business. his type of business. No, this is different, obviously. It is the, irreplaceable. Yeah. It is irreplaceable. You can't go out, and he says this, it would cost like $500 billion in order to replace uh, the assets of, of Burlington Northern. So, Josh, what was your, your big takeaway? I'm, I'm sure you had a few. Uh, obviously, the encomium to uh, Charlie Munger was, was touching. Uh, I thought the letter was kind of short on anything that you might take away as an investor if you've been reading the letters over the last you know, few years or decades, as many of us have. There wasn't really a lot new there, and that's, that's to be expected. How many times can you write the same thing? And the old principles still work just as well uh, as anything new that you would say. So my big takeaway was that there wasn't a big takeaway. But I do want to highlight what an incredible time it is to be a Berkshire shareholder. Arguably, this has never been a better investment in people's portfolios. Last week, this stock, the B shares, printed an RSI of 84 it, it's trading like an AI stock. That's the sixth highest relative strength rating in the whole S&P 500. 
So it's cooled off a little bit. We have RSI data going back to 1995. The only times the Berkshire B shares have had a higher reading uh, than 84 was like August of 09, March of 98, June of 97. Right now is the best. And there's a reason for that. The stock has not had a negative year since 2015. People just refused to sell it. It was up 2% in 2020, 29% in 21. In 2022, when everything else went down, it was up 3%. It was up 15% last year. This year, it's up 17% year to date. If you're a Berkshire shareholder right now, you just refuse to part with your shares, and that is manifesting itself in the way that this thing is trading. So it really is an extraordinary time to be long Berkshire. I'm really happy that I am. I don't expect this momentum to keep up forever. But even when you look at the business, insurance revenue up double digits on a quarterly basis year over year. For the last five quarters in a row, they are just crushing it in most of their core businesses, and the investment portfolio is lit. So I'm just really happy with what's going on overall, the letter notwithstanding. All right, good stuff. Uh, a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hit Alphabet shares. Uh, they're getting hit today by near 4%. Some serious questions about their AI positioning. We'll discuss next. Welcome back. Let's talk Alphabet. It is underperforming, under pressure today, this year as well. Look at it, down 4%. So, Joe, go to, we have Joe, Jim, Josh, all, all own uh, shares of Alphabet. This is on the Gemini rollout, which I think it's safe to say has been a bit of a debacle. Yeah, it, this is frustrating, and, and it's frustrating because coming into the year, I identified Alphabet as one of the mega caps that I felt had the most opportunity to really catch up in terms of performance relative to the other ones. And I wanted to personally buy it. And thankfully, I haven't personally buy it. Look, it began with the earnings report at the end of January. The stock was around 153. The stock has never recovered from that earnings report. And there was, there was softness in the Google ad revenue. Now we come in this morning, the stock is down 4%, and you're questioning whether in fact this company can be a reliable source when you're thinking about AI. And what happened last week is troublesome with Generator, and you think going forward, okay, can I have confidence in what they're doing in AI? And clearly the market is debating that right now. It's very frustrating. Um, Joe, excellent comments, and it is right to have questions. I'm going to give you an opinion. Obviously, we're predicting the future, folks. Can't guarantee this, but I, I do think the question is that, yes, you can uh, own Google here and add to it at these levels and feel pretty confident. Can you I mean, trust them as reliable? You know, can you trust anything about the future? No, let me let me no, try to no, answer. No, let me try to answer your question. Let me hang on. Okay. You interrupted me before I fully answered the question. Okay. okay. If you go back about a year ago, it's just a little over a year ago that Bard first messed up. Remember this satellite question? You know, what what satellite first uh, photographed an exoplanet? And they got it wrong. Stock went down. It went down hard, down to like ninety dollars a share. In the last year, the stock's up fifty six percent. And I will grant you that's nothing like you know the rest of the AI stocks. I will 
grant you that. It is, however, 2x what the S&P 500 returned. Now, can the same thing happen here when they've had another misstep? I say yes because fundamentally, you've got to go back to the beginning. This is the company that has owned DeepMind for many, many years. It is one of the pioneers in artificial intelligence. Yes, they've had some missteps. And maybe that's because artificial intelligence is hard. Maybe it's simply really innovative and you're going to make mistakes along the way. That is part of innovation. I think Google Alphabet has the tools in place to succeed and thrive in artificial interesting, intelligence. Uh, interesting, Josh, from Barron's, um, that it's cheap for a reason. This is according to Melius Research from a Barron's article. Uh, it's cheap for a reason. Uh, the analyst there says, though, it has a moat because of search, obviously, uh, that it's about to be disrupted. How, how big of a deal is this for you? It is a big deal because in Silicon Valley, stock prices become uh, the, the perception that drives stock prices in the short term can always uh, cross over and become reality. Uh, George Soros calls this reflexivity, where actions in, in the prices of securities becomes the reality that these companies live in because everyone else can see yeah, how this, everyone this else feels. This is in feels. that zone, it feels There's like, a, right? Yeah. So let me, let me not mince words. There's uh, a problem at Alphabet. They did way too much hiring. They imported uh, a virus. They've got people running around there, apparently at every level, who think it's their job to uh, heal social injustices and try to uh, fix problems in, in socioeconomic problems and racial issues and gender equality issues. They, they think they're supposed to be like using software products to heal these, these wounds that in some cases are thousands of years been, been afflicting the human race. I think these people have to either decide they want to help advance the company's interests or they have to be let go. And you watched Meta spend a year and a half firing these people. They would never say why they're getting rid of people. Of course, it's always uh, layoffs, targeted layoffs related to getting lean and profitability. The reality is you have a lot of people in the building that have their own agenda right. that is not Would you the, sell the stock? What, what's beneficial to the company. Would you sell the stock? No, I'm not going to sell the stock because I think it's a fixable problem. Okay, okay. Mike Santoli's next with his midday word. Back, senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here with his midday word. I'm wondering what you made of the assessments of kind of where we are from Mr. Diamond and Buffett. Yeah. And you get them within 24 hours of, of one another, so it's good timing to discuss both. Yeah, neither really sounding any alarms. I know when it comes to, to Jamie Dimon, I mean, his posture is usually to be worrying about things, even when there's not an obvious problem. You're kind of almost paying the premium for the stock, so he does your worrying for you. Um, and then when it comes to, to Buffett, in terms of um, the way the market is priced, it's not surfacing a lot of you know, obvious opportunities to throw a lot of capital at right now. And I think that links up with uh, what Jamie had to say about CEO confidence. So in other words, people are recognizing that it's a pretty comfortable environment. If you look at financial conditions, if you look at where investment grade debt trades right now, everything seems like um, things are better than anticipated a few months ago. And now people have more or less internalized that. So it certainly leaves you in that moment of saying what could go wrong. 
and, right. and, and where we go from here. But I don't think that there's a lot that you would necessarily say this right here is the thing. Would you use the word um, frustrated when describing how you think Buffett feels about no great opportunities out there for what may very well be one last big yeah. thing with this pile they're sitting on? I would say not so much frustrated, mostly because uh, he has a stated and obvious willingness to just clip coupons and put the cash in treasury bills and almost trade on the reputation for prudence and safety. And the only reason you'd worry about that is if your stock was getting penalized. And that's the farthest thing from the truth. If you look at the premium at the book value, it's exactly, it's rich, if anything. And he probably would agree with that. He's not buying a pile of his own stock either. Yeah. As we said, new high there. Uh, Yeah. You know, Jamie's a couple bucks off his own. Uh, Thank you very much. I'll see you on Closing Bell. Mike Santoli. Final trades are next. We're back. We're going to do final trades in a moment. But Devon Energy reports tomorrow after the bell, Bryn. What do you expect? I mean, it's been a stinker. It's down 20 percent over the last year. Diamond Bank's up 24 percent on a price. The market's expecting earnings and revenue to grow about 6 percent. My patience is wearing thin. So I think unless they come out with a real plan to get the market excited, I'm going to have to exit stage left on this name. Well, do you have a view on Dev? Not on Devon, but some of the energy names are starting to work recently. In particular, Refine is Valero, MPC. All right, Bryn, why don't you give me a final trade? Okay, speaking of energy, uranium, URNN, the Sprott ETF. It's come down from 58. We're going to continue to talk about clean energy. I think it's a good time to have an entry point into URNM. Okay, Josh Brown. Uh, reiterate my comments on JP Morgan. It really is its own story. And if you're looking to invest in the large banks, that's where I would be. Okay. Uh, a few bucks, as we said, off a high. I've been trading around there. Steel, di- steel Dynamics. There's two steel names that are in the strategy. Newcore, Steel Dynamics. Steel Dynamics reported this morning strong capital allocation strategy announced stock is breaking out further. You know, Scott, we mentioned from time to time that semiconductors as a group are strong, and that gets lost in how strong NVIDIA is. But if you look at something like Qualcomm as an example, it's about to set a new two-year high. When it does, I think it breaks out further than there. Attractive valuation, smartphone market looks like it's bottom, and you've got automotive and Internet of Things to pull it along as well. So I think Qualcomm is where you should look. Quickly, your perspectives to Alphabet. Are you thinking about bouncing it? Are you thinking about bouncing it, Jimmy? I, I, absolutely not. I thought I made the case that I think you should add to it here. So I cannot until the end of April, but if I personally owned it, yeah, I'd sell it. You would? Yes, I would. Wow. Okay. Big doing. Sorry, Jimmy. I'll see do? you on Closing Bell with Dan Greenhouse and Mike Mayo and Chris Verone. I look forward to that. The exchange starts now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. 
with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 